0: Good morning again. Uh, yeah, just to extend the welcome that's already been given out this morning. Uh, my name's Tim, one of the pastors here, if, you haven't, uh, if we haven't met yet. I uh, just want to say, real privilege to be able to gather this morning and to hear the word of the Lord together. Uh, and we're going to open up Ephesians chapter 6 in a short moment. Uh, but just before we get into it, just to let you know, um, in about two weeks, we're going to be having a baby, which is very exciting. Um, not for my sleep life, but for the rest of life, it is exciting. Um, and we've known about this for a number of months. We've also known that Tony's going to be on long service leave, our senior pastor, for the three months, and there's going to be an overlap. It's not come as, as a surprise, and so we're well prepared to transition into that time with both of us away. There's people in place, there's plans in place, and uh, the Lord Jesus is still your shepherd uh, while we're away. Um, so, while your more average shepherds, Tony and I, are away, he does not leave the building. Um, and so, I just wanted to let you know that in two weeks um, we'll be off. Let's read Ephesians chapter 6. We're just reading four verses this morning Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 to 9. Ephesians 6, verse 5 to 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us, that we have your word and that you hold it out to us. Please speak to us now as we consider what you have to say about bond servants and masters and fill us with love and hope and peace, fill us with joy and righteousness as we, as we receive the food of your word to us. Please be at work amongst us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Australians have a really interesting relationship with authority. When I think of uh, past prime ministers around Australia, I think of someone like John Howard. What is it that I remember of him? Is it his amazing policies, his leadership of the nation? Uh, No, it's of him running down the pitch about to bowl a cricket ball, and it goes way off, nowhere near the batsman. Or it's his overextended eyebrows. Australians have a really interesting relationship with authority. Uh, Some have called it the tall poppy syndrome. Uh, Whenever anyone gets elevated above the rest of of us, rather than honouring them and respecting them, they become the target for jokes and insults by all of those around. But the question we want to answer here today is not about Australian culture, but about God's word. And we want to come here from God's word, the answer to this question, what does God say about how we respond to authority? And what if, what if you're in a position of authority over others? What would God's word have to say to you in that position? Our passage is going to help us answer those questions this morning, and together we're going to see these things. We're going to have a look at ancient day slavery, we're going to think about slaves and masters in the church, and then we're going to see how all of this has really important things for us to consider in the modern world today. So let's get into it. We start by noticing that our passage this morning is about slavery. It uses the words bondservants and masters there in verse 5 and 9, which is language used to describe the economic institution of slavery. And the first thing we need to do here is actually just notice that there is such a thing as ancient-day slavery and modern-day slavery, and they have similarities, but they have very important differences as well. Modern-day slavery is an evil that ought to be shut down immediately. People made in the image of God, treated as though they were the property of others, treated as less than human. Uh, The slave drivers that abducted Africans away from their homes and families and countries to be sold as slaves in the south of the US and other places around the world committed a great evil. Those who traffic women and children as sex slaves to the highest bidder are worthy of God's divine justice. Today there are 20 million people who are enslaved in the various forms of slavery around the world and it is awful. The Bible condemns that kind of slavery without a question. The problem that it raises for us Uh, is that when people see the slavery of the world today, they might think something like this in light of the passage that we have here today. Slavery is evil. The Bible promotes slavery. Therefore, the Bible is evil. Slavery is evil. The Bible seems to promote slavery. Therefore, the Bible must be evil too. That's the thinking that some people have followed in the past. The first thing to say in in response to that is this. The Bible teaches that every single person, male or female, white or black, young or old, are filled to the brim with value and worth and dignity, with more clarity and greater force, in fact, than any other view of the world uh, that presents itself. We learn on the very first pages of the Bible that God created humanity in his very own image. So any institution, any institution at all that will not support that kind of view of humanity will find no support from the Bible. The second thing to say is this. We cannot read back our modern-day versions of slavery back into the Bible as though, they're saying the same, as though they're the same thing. They're quite different. Certainly, slavery in the ancient world had its own evils, but it was an institution that still treated slaves as humans, or at least to a greater extent than modern-day versions. Ancient-day slavery was not race-based, for example. People became slaves through economic necessity, through war, through kidnapping, or by birth. Slaves had the opportunity to rise to positions of significance in society, take on social responsibility. They could work as doctors, as tutors, as government officials. They could manage household finances, earn their own money, purchase their own freedom. Slaves even had access to certain political rights. So it was a different thing to modern-day slavery, but it still had its own evils. Many slaves were worked to death, or subjected to awful conditions, female slaves were made to serve their masters' uh, desires, and all slaves were regarded as property of their masters. Uh, One of the key distinctions between the two kinds of slavery, if modern-day slavery treats humans purely as property, ancient-day slavery treated slaves as human property there was still a sense of human dignity and worth that was maintained in ancient-day slavery, even if it still did have its own evils. And so knowing this about the two types of slavery, there's the modern-day slavery, which the Bible condemns as evil and abhorrent, uh, and then there's the ancient-day slavery that seems to get uh, some airspace in the Bible it's worth noting that even that kind of slavery, the slavery of the ancient world, is a slavery that if we're being obedient to Scripture, we ought to set ourselves against. Even that kind of slavery ought to be abolished. And that's in the very words of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9-10. to 10. I'm going to read out these words. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. The passage then lists out different kinds of sins that need to be condemned. One of them included there is enslavers. Those who take people captive to sell them into slavery. So here we see that Scripture, in fact, does not promote slavery. Slavery. In fact, the Scriptures itself seek to abolish slavery, ancient-day slavery included. So knowing all of that background info- information, we come then back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul doesn't instruct them to cease the practice of slavery outright, does he? What you might expect that, that if Paul wants to work against the institution of slavery in the world, that he might say, Masters, set your slaves free straight away. Slaves, don't obey your masters. Serve the Lord only, not your master. But he doesn't say that, does he? And there's actually probably a couple of reasons why that's the case. Firstly, there's the very simple, pragmatic question. Where's the slave going to sleep that night? A master was to provide their slaves with the necessary uh, components for livelihood, where's their income and livelihood going to come from if their, Paul just says, let's stop that relation al- relationship altogether? And secondly, there would have been legal restrictions, legislation put in place to say that you can't just let a slave slip off quickly because that's actually not for their good. And so if Paul were to come in and do that, he'd actually be telling them to break the law and doing something not for the slave's good. So no, Paul doesn't instruct them to stop slavery altogether, but contained in these short four verses are powerfully subversive arguments. As Paul applies the gospel to the slave-master relationship, he radically undermines it. And so let's notice some of those things. We're looking at Ephesians 6, 5 9 and it's worth reminding ourselves that this passage comes as part of a section that he wants to, chapter 5, verse 15, help us to look carefully how we walk. 518, to live lives that are filled with the Spirit. 521, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We, as followers of the Lord Jesus, are called to live out our lives in reverence for Christ. And just by way of reminder, who is this Christ? Christ. Who is it that we're called to live our lives out of reverence for? Well, let's remind ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 7, he's the one whose blood buys our redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Through his blood he lavishes his generous grace upon us. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And then chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, we we learn that he's the one who God mightily raised up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. All things have been put under his feet. And we are called to live our lives in reverence for Christ. We submit to him in everything. And so God's word to slaves, then, chapter 6, verse 5, is this. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Living in submission to Christ, the King of kings, Lord of lords, does not mean that we ignore earthly authorities. So that's one kind of logic we could use, couldn't we? Uh, And we could apply, I submit to Christ. He's my boss. He's my king. So I don't need to submit to earthly authorities. That's not what Paul says, does he? He says, obey your earthly masters. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling which, by the way, is not saying slaves need to be anxiously despairing every time their master walks in the room. No, fear and trembling is just a saying used to describe treat this person with respect. Honour the authority that's been given to them over you. So obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Obey with a sincere heart, with willingness, and for the good of your master, so serving their best interests rather than just your own. Serve them with a sincere heart. Not just as eye service or as people pleases. So the temptation for a slave was to be lazy when their master's not there, but to work when they're around. If I work when they're around, if I do all the good jobs while they're there, they'll be impressed by me and they may give me more things, they may take better care of me. And it's a human tendance, tendency, isn't it? I can remember when I worked as a general labourer on a worksite, it was a bunch of apartment buildings in the city. There was a bunch of us general labourers, actually. Uh, And I can remember some of the general labourers would play uh, a game of hide-and-seek with the managers. The goal was to find a spot on the worksite, big 15-storey building, find a spot where no-one else would see and do absolutely nothing for the longest time possible. So, of course, when you're in the lunchroom and having lunch break, fill up your pockets with all the food that you can, make sure you get your earphones in there, make sure your phone is in your back pocket, and you're ready to go for a long hour and a half break during work time. Set up a picnic, have a nice time. Oh, but of course, if the manager walks past, pick up the broom, start sweeping, pick up those things that you're meant to move over there and get working. There's a tendency there, isn't there? To only work when those who have authority over us are watching and can see. But it's a tendency that the Lord speaks into and he says, no. He says, don't, don't be like that. Don't just serve by way of eye service, service or as people pleases. Sincerity of heart. And radically and shockingly, Verse 6, he says, serve as bondservants of Christ. It's littered throughout these verses, isn't it? Verse 5, obey as you would Christ. Verse 6, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of, not your master, the will of God. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Now that is utterly subversive, isn't it? Because it's saying that this slavery is ultimately a slave of Christ. This person that you have working as your slave in your household is not ultimately your slave. This slave is ultimately a slave of the risen Lord Jesus. Not your slave. And verse 8 there provides the foundation for the whole thing. It says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. See, the good done in this life will receive a reward in eternity. We've got to be really clear when we're talking about rewards. We don't mean that we're earning a position in heaven by the good things we do. No, we've just read before, chapter 1, verse 7, by the blood of Jesus we receive by faith our redemption. And yet it's unavoidable in this verse, isn't it? We have to understand this verse to be saying that there will in fact be a judgment conducted on Christians by the Lord Jesus for the good deeds done in this life. What exactly those rewards would be, I don't know. But it's unavoidable in that verse, isn't it? That for the good work done here, there is a reward. And just think for a moment that for a slave, this is hugely dignifying for the work that they do as slaves, isn't it? The final judge of the good things they do is not their master, but the Lord Jesus. He sees. He sees every moment of your day. And the good things you do, whether your master is around or not, the Lord Jesus sees and will reward. And to push the envelope a little further, notice also there at the end of verse 8. This is a judgment conducted whether bondservant or free. See, again, Paul is utterly subverting this institution of slavery. Slave and master put on the same level. The good done by by the slave is of equal value to the good done by the master. Where Roman society attached a certain level of dignity and status on those who are masters and owned slaves and had their own household, and Roman culture that disregarded those who were slaves, the Lord Jesus says, none of that. I dignify you both equally. Before me, you're in fact both slaves. You both come under my authority. You both report to me, and the good you do, I see. And Paul says to the slaves, that's why you serve your master with sincerity. Because you're serving him. You're serving Jesus. Just this week, I met a woman I hadn't met before, so we got to know each other briefly. I asked her name. I told her my name. Uh, We both had daughters, so we shared some things about parents and daughters. And then I asked her what it was that she does for a living. What is it that she does with her time during the week? And it was slight, but I could tell there was just this little bit of hesitation in sharing with me what she did for a job. After that hesitation, only slight, she shared that she cleaned houses for a living. We can do that sometimes, can't we? We can think that there are certain kinds of work that elevate us to a higher status than others or put us even in a position below others because it's the dirty work that no one wants to do. What we read here undoes our system of evaluating people based on the kind of work they do, doesn't it? Because we're serving Christ. It's a really important word for us, isn't it? We spend around 40 hours a week working. We spend around you know, 40 hours a week either working as self-employed, an employee, or, or we do the work of managing a household and looking after little children what we do during the week matters to the Lord. If it's changing nappies, feeding a small child, keeping them alive, if that's your day job, that is valuable work. It's valuable work for lots of reasons, but one reason we read here in our passage is that it's work done for the Lord. If you're engaged in the work of cleaning houses, that's valuable work, isn't it? It's valuable for lots of reasons, but we read here that it's because it's done for the Lord. And so Paul addresses the slaves who were seen to be the lowest in society, certainly in a class below their masters. But he says to them, Before the Lord Jesus, you stand as equals. And as such, they ought to work with sincerity as to the Lord. Verse 9, the passage moves to address masters. Masters do the same thing? Do the same thing? In a society that tells masters that they're more valuable than slaves, that elevates them to a status above slaves, Paul says to the masters, do the same thing as the slaves. Now, it's worth saying, he's not saying, masters, obey your slaves. He still honors the authority relationship that's there. Slaves, obey your masters, and masters, conduct your authority over them in a particular way. But he says, yield that authority with sincerity of heart, with goodwill, doing the will of God. Direct and manage your slaves as though you were doing it for Christ, as though Christ were watching your every interaction. When a slave makes a mistake, when a slave makes you look like a fool in front of your so-called important friends, when a slave sleeps in, certainly you would want to keep them accountable. But what does Paul say? He says, stop the threatening. Do not thrent- threaten them. In other words, do not use an abusive power over them to manipulate their behavior to serve your own interests. You better not threaten them. And why? Well, it's there in the middle of verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. See, his master... Uh, maybe the master over a few slaves, you do have a certain authority over your slaves. But every master really is a slave. Every person really is a slave because there is no greater master than the one who is in heaven. And with him, there is no partiality. So the Lord is not fooled by games that people play assigning different people to different levels of status and worth. There is no partiality with him. In our part of the world and in this time of history, the slave-master relationship hardly exists. But there are profound things that God wants to reveal to us here in these short verses. And I want us to highlight two as we race to a close. First, of course, the slave-master relationship is very different to anything we have in this world, but there is a parallel between that one and the relationship between an employee and an employer. There's a similar dynamic of authority and submission, and it's a relationship that concerns our work life. So I think we can apply the principle that God has applied here in our working week. And so, are you an employee? Let me ask you these questions. Do you respect the authority of your boss? Do you serve them with sincerity and goodwill? Do you serve them as though you're serving Christ? What's your attitude towards them when they're not in the room? What's the difference between how hard you work for them when they're there compared to when they're not? You serve them as though you're serving Christ. Let's flip it. Are you an employer? Do you do the same things? Do you treat them with sincerity of heart? Do you treat them as though Christ is in the room as you're speaking to them? And perhaps, as our passage does this morning, do you need to be challenged? Do you need to be challenged to stop your threatening? Because that would dishonour Christ. And just to narrow in a little more here, uh, one example of uh, this that exists in Australian culture, if you're a tradie, how do you uh, treat your apprentice? seems to be a feature of Australian culture uh, that we treat apprentices as worthy of less dignity than tradies. Now, I want to say I understand a few things. Firstly, I understand that as a tradie, when you take on an apprentice, you're actually taking on quite a lot of cost, financially, to pay for them to be there. And secondly, I understand that they can be less competent than yourself. They've had less years' experience, Uh, they don't know what they're doing sometimes, and really, they need a lot of help to get where they need to be. But what does this word from the Lord have to say about that relationship dynamic? I think it says that we need to treat apprentices with dignity and honour and serve them as we're serving Christ. Still have authority over them, still keep them accountable, still help them to become more and more competent in their job, but to treat them with respect and dignity. And just to clarify, this doesn't mean that every now and again you don't send them to the workshop and ask for a left-handed screwdriver. (coughs) But I think there is a word here that would challenge some of the attitudes that we have towards apprentices in the workplace. We ought to treat them with sincerity of heart with their best interests at heart, always doing the will of God. And if you're an apprentice here, you need to hear these words too. You need to recognise that tradie has taken on financial cost in inviting you into the business. You need to recognise that you indeed actually have a lot to learn and being proud and cocky is not the best attitude to have towards your tradie. No, serve your tradie with respect. Honour his authority. Do what you can to serve him as you serve Christ. That's the first thing. And finally, to close. This has implications for how we treat one another, doesn't it? These words, Paul wrote, uh, were addressed to a church. A church that probably had slaves and masters sitting in the pews and at a gathering like this, these words would have been read out to the church. Now, if I was a master that week and this part of Ephesians was being read out and I had told my slaves to sit at the back of the church building out of sight, out of mind, I think I'd be feeling rather squirmish. And the reason for that is because Christ is equally our master. When we gather together as the Lord's people, the Lord's people, we are saying that there is something far more fundamental to our relationships than whether we're slaves or masters, whether we're apprentices or tradies, employees or employers, whether we do do a job that seems impressive to our culture or not whether you're collecting rubbish or making violins. We gather together equally as slaves of Christ. That's what, that is what is fundamental to our relationships to one another. and So we share together as one body. We hear the word of Christ together. We serve one another as Christ has served us. Let's pray to close. To pray, we're going to read these verses from Philippians chapter 2 about our Lord Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, but becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Our great Lord Jesus, who came as a slave. The Lord Jesus who came to serve our interests above his own. Who went to the cross, whose blood was spilt, to serve us. And we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who has been raised to the highest place, who has been glorified above every power, the glory of God the Father. Father, help us to serve as Jesus served. Help us to love the Lord Jesus as the glorified risen King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.